You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from White Rock United Methodist Church located in Dallas, Texas. For more information about who we are, you can find us on the web at wrumc.org. Continue in our series this morning, Recoloring the Bible. It's a series that focuses in on the stories of our childhood, and we are working to re-examine those stories as adults. And there is a big difference between how we read the Bible as children and how we read the Bible as adults. Once again, like I said in the first week, it is critical that we as a congregation develop appropriate and challenging curriculum for our children. We must invest in the work of our kids if we are going to be the church that God is calling us to be. Uh, There really is no option on that front. And if we're going to continue to make a difference uh, in the lives of our children and families here, uh, we must, we must invest in our kids. I want to let you know, um, kind of in on a little secret, it may not be a secret to you, to you all, this series, and really every worship series here at White Rock, um, we design our series in collaboration. Um, Our entire staff is really involved in the process of developing worship series that we believe um, are important for our congregation, that the Holy Spirit is indeed working and moving, and we try to pay attention to that. Sometimes we get away and spend the night... um, you know, at a retreat house. Uh, Actually, tomorrow we're going to spend a whole day um, at a retreat house in Richardson uh, preparing for worship series over the next several months. And so I'm just going to ask you real quick, find a time tomorrow to pray for our staff as we discern where the Holy Spirit is moving. We challenge ourselves to be good stewards of the gift and the responsibility that is planning worship for our church, I'd just love for you uh, to find some time to pray for us. Um, I also say as pastor, though, and even in this collaborative process, I have some leeway in the text that I preach. I guess that is the perks of being the senior pastor. I can uh, decide what I'm going to preach on. And with great power comes great responsibility. Um, I have been struggling all week to make sense of why I chose today's text for today. I really have. I've kicked myself all week for choosing this text because, friends, um, I've really struggled to construct a sermon um, Construct a sermon with a bold and approachable delivery. I've been challenged by this text, um, considering the particular text drips heavy with complexity, uh, but I chose it, and so here we go. Um, I'll remind you that this series, we're not putting the text on the screen. You're welcome to read along uh, in your Bible in the pew. Uh, But the hope was that you could hear the story retold. That's really important, I think, for us to hear Scripture read aloud. Uh, And so we'll be in the 19th chapter of Genesis. Uh, But before we get there and before we get into the reading, I just want to give us a quick recap of what's happened in previous chapters. Abraham, um, at the time, Abram and Lot have separated. 
uncle and nephew have separated, and Lot chooses to relocate his family, his wealth, um, all of his possessions uh, in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham has chosen a very different region uh, to kind of settle down. And during this separation, God shows up to Abraham, blesses Abraham, establishes a covenant with Abraham, changes his name from Abram to Abraham, and is very active in the chapters leading up to this 19th chapter. In fact, God shows up with two angels. These three strangers visit Abraham and Sarah and promise them that Sarah will indeed bear a child. God stays back and kind of hangs out with Abraham, and the angels leave Abraham um, and God and head to Sodom in preparation to look for just ten righteous citizens so that God will spare that city. That number actually started as 50 righteous people in this city, but Abraham and God play this weird divine uh, price is right type of game, and the number falls all the way down to ten. And so God is planning on destroying the city because it's one evil and hateful place. And so God sends God's angels, God's companions to the gates of Sodom. And this is where our text picks up. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then you can rise early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the men, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters you have, who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they replied, stand back. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien... And he would play judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And then they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they were unable to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his son-in-laws, 
who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his his son-in-laws to be jesting. The word of God for the people of God. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. The one who expects radical hospitality from us. Help us to pay attention. Amen. So I am a sucker for uh, stockings at Christmas time. Um, I'm a sucker for a really well-curated stocking in particular, and my mom is very good at that. And This year in my stocking, and I'm not really a prop guy during sermons, but I, I couldn't help myself. This year in my stocking, I received this. It, it, it came unwrapped, unlabeled. I had really no idea what this wooden object was was and so I asked my mom what is this and she said I think it's a wooden puzzle so for the past month it's set on my desk and when I'm at an impasse whether that's clearing out my inbox or writing sermons about sodomy I fiddle with this thing (laughs) it's much more complicated than you think Now, the real joke about this would be if this wooden object isn't a puzzle at all, it's just some sort of wooden knick-knack or really a cheap paperweight and something my mom picked up, you know, at the half-price bin at Bed Bath Beyond or something, and I've just been fiddling with something that I think is a puzzle, but it is indeed not a puzzle, and I'd say to myself, really breaking their breaking new ground there, Copernicus, uh, aren't you? But all week I've been kind of fixated on this thing, um, and I drew up a plan of attack on how to actually solve this puzzle. I've been pulling at two uh, ends of the puzzle uh, very meticulously, um, hoping that I will solve it, and I've been pulling rather hard, and my hope is that I think once you solve it, the whole thing will kind of fall apart. Um, And it's just been kind of sitting there all week, and I've been rather obsessed with it, And while I've been pulling on this puzzle and preparing for this sermon, I've realized something that I think is rather remarkable. This puzzle, perceived puzzle, its haunting lack of clarity and my obsession to solve this puzzle is a great metaphor for how I approach this text. It's a great metaphor for how I've come to actually wrestle with this text. I grew up thinking... Uh, It was odd that God turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. And I remember seeing a felt board character that was a picture of table salt. Uh, And this was the totality of my understanding of Genesis chapter 19 until I realized that this story was definitely more rated X than my VBS volunteer uh, alluded to. This story is actually similar to another story in Judges. Uh, They actually mirror each other in a lot of ways. Uh, But the text in Judges um, has a more grisly ending to it. And so if you're interested in the grisly stories of the the Old Old Testament, I invite you to read that story as well. Um, But what's really remarkable about this text is that for the past three decades, this lovely story in Genesis has served as ground zero for a cultural debate in the church. 
it has served as ground zero for a debate that is still going on within our denomination, that being the inclusion and affirmation of our LGBTQ siblings. And it continues to rage on in the United Methodist Church today. And the question that the text really provides us is rather straightforward. Does God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of homosexuality or because the city repeatedly demonstrates radical inhospitality? So we are reminded that in this story, God's companions show up and Lot urges them to take up residence in his home. And by doing so, he's harboring this stranger. And the town is very uncomfortable with this idea that there are outsiders staying in Lot's house. They come to the door, demand that they know him, sexually assault him. Lot offers his daughters um, as a compromise. Um, I will say, uh, all the men in this story seem to be despicable. Um, And I'll also say, we know how the story ends. Uh, The angels are companions of God. They blind the men. Lot and his family escape. Um, God destroys the city, and then Lot's wife turns back and is turned into a pillar of salt. Like this wooden puzzle, I've engaged in a tug of war with some of my more conservative brothers and sisters um, to see who will win out. And just like this wooden puzzle, the pressure I apply to this text really gets me nowhere. Just a quick note, there are roughly nine texts in Scripture that are often used to turn our LGBTQ siblings into issues and reduce them to moral litmus tests and second-class citizens. There are four texts in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 23, 1 Kings 14, 1 Kings 22, and 2 Kings chapter 23 that simply prohibit prostitution by men and women. There are other two texts in Leviticus in chapters 18 and 20 that are part of the Holiness Code. These texts explicitly ban homosexual acts and... These texts also ban eating raw meat, planting two different kinds of seed in a field, wearing two different types of fabric in one garment. They also ban tattoos. Really, Leviticus bans a lot of stuff. The gospel, read it if you don't believe me, and let me know if you finish it. (laughs) The gospels that reflect Jesus's life and ministry, death and resurrection. The Gospels mention homosexuality zero times. But just a reminder, Jesus does talk a lot about important things. One of Jesus' favorite topics in the Gospel is the poor and how we spend our money. But never does Jesus talk about the sins of LGBTQ folk. Paul mentions it three times in Romans and 1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy. I would argue his mentions are are cultural and represent a sin of lust, uh, but that is another sermon altogether. The question that looms, I think, this morning as we engage the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is what do we do with this text? 
I will admit that the great temptation I have is to loudly and boldly proclaim an alternative reading that rescues this text from the weaponized interpretation of fundamentalist and literalist. And we pull hard against their claims on Scripture, much like this wooden puzzle that is sitting on my podium, right? And it gets stuck in our grasp. And I admit that this struggle with folks who disagree with me about this text is a fun crusade. I like being right. The only thing I like more than being right is not being wrong. And I like puzzles that don't come in a thousand pieces. And that, my friends, really is my, my sin. I have this desire to be right all the time. The truth is, I don't need to win an argument regarding this troubling story of Lot and God's angels and sexual assault. Scripture does that on our behalf all on its own. In Luke, in the 10th chapter, Jesus is talking to his disciples as they prepare to be sent out and do the work and ministry of God in the world. And he says to them this, Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest to you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Also in Ezekiel 16, we read, This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. They had excess food. They had prosperity that came to them easy, but did not aid the poor and did not aid the needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me, and therefore I removed them when I saw it. Our text this morning in Genesis 19 is not about homosexuality. It is about radical abuse, in hospitality, and how we are susceptible to use our power, the power that we have, in all the wrong ways. The challenge is to let go of our righteous zeal and let a text as complicated and torturous as this one is to work on us, to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ We must engage Scripture in a way that allows it to challenge us. And we must invite the complexity of the text to serve as a mirror to reveal our own flaws, our own need for repentance. Because we, all of us, are walking around with logs in our eyes. Right interpretation of Genesis 19 And the understanding of Sodom and Gomorrah is not to be used as a counterweight to the agendas of fundamentalists and literalists. Rather, it is to be a plumb line that is held up to us as readers and demands from us a confession. 
So we must let go of this tug of war. We must stop insisting that we are right. And we must begin to realize that each and every one of us, we are all sodomites. Because whether intentional or not, we easily forget, exploit, mock, and ignore the poor, the needy, the marginalized, the vulnerable, and the migrant in our midst. We use our power in self-serving and gratifying ways. We, if we are honest with ourselves, which is hard, But if we are honest with ourselves, we believe that our power, our privilege, our position in this life is somehow earned and belongs to us. And we ignore the challenges and the opportunities to see and sit with Christ. When I look and read about the poverty rates of children in this city, I question our collective desire as a city to actually make a difference. We, as citizens of Dallas, should be ashamed at those statistics. We should be utterly ashamed of the amount of children that are living in poverty right next door. When I hear about neighborhoods who organize and rally to stop shelters from moving in, to protect property values, when there is an organized effort to stop attempts to house our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness, I have serious doubts, serious doubts that the kingdom of God is as near as Jesus suggests. When I hear of what human trafficking looks like in our own city and state, And I see the hard work that folks like our own Chad Freimeyer and Casa are doing to protect the most vulnerable amongst us. I am disgusted that their work, this thankless and tireless work, is even needed in our city. In just a few hours, actually, trafficking and domestic abuse, sexual assault will spike. This evening during the Super Bowl, one could argue that America will look more like Sodom than the Christian nation we claim to be under the shiny lights of our biggest sports event of the year. And as I returned from the border in December, I saw what hopelessness looks like when it stares back at you. We're going to talk about that at lunch. I hope you come. The question in this text is not, does God demand from us compassion and care of the poor, marginalized, vulnerable, and the migrant? The answer is clear. Absolutely. God demands justice and mercy for the stranger, the outcast, the migrant in our midst. The answer is clear. That is what God demands of God's people. The, the better question, the better question is why? Why is God so concerned with the needs of the poor and those who live on the margins? Why does God call us rich folks 
to repent and care for the needy. It's not, I think, it's not so we can feel better about ourselves. That's not the whole purpose of caring for those who are less fortunate. It's not so we can feel better about ourselves or so we can develop a sense of dignity for ourselves and for others, although that is a very good outcome. I think that the reason that God demands our attention and care for the needy and the poor, it's really because that's where God has chosen to show up. God dwells on the margins. God shows up on the margins. God shows up in this story as a stranger who sits in the tent with Abraham. God shows up in the form of angels who visit Lot and in God's own incarnation to poor earthly parents. God shows up in the midst of poverty and Jesus' own ministry is sustained by others' compassion. We are called to be in relationship with the poor, the migrant, the stranger, the marginalized, because that is where Christ is. So give me a church that can let go of the need to be right. I have no need for that church anymore. Rather, give me a church that can be challenged and empowered by the gospel to find hope in Christ in the midst of our broken world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You're listening to a podcast recorded at White Rock United Methodist Church in the heart of East Dallas. For more information, you can find us at wrumc.org. And make sure you stay subscribed to this channel to stay up to date with all of our content.